everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and today is episode 210 for March 8th, 2021. And man, we've got a huge news show for you today. I had so many, so many articles bookmarked that I wanted to go through. I really had to pick and choose this week, and I still have a lot to get through. But uh, we're going to talk about Facebook and Google in Australia. Uh, there's been a couple interesting updates on the SolarWinds hack. Uh, then we're going to talk about an SMS tax scam, and this is happening not just in the U.S., but uh, it's happening in, around the world, actually. Um, we're going to talk about how some Alexa skills... Sorry, I said the word. Shoot. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I don't mean to wake up your devices. The uh, the Echo products that Amazon makes, uh, the, uh, some serious security uh, gaps there and data protection problems. There was a huge, on it's still ongoing, Microsoft Exchange hack, which is... Something most of you probably can't do anything about unless you happen to be a business owner that's running a Microsoft Exchange server, but it's looking pretty bad and still still going on. We'll talk about that. And then we're going to talk some more about some privacy and tracking stuff. The changes from Apple to iOS 14, which are going to prompt users whether or not they want to be tracked, has caused a major, major stir in the ad tech industry. And uh, in fact, so we're, we're going to talk about how they're dealing with that. Uh, we're also going to talk about a huge $650 million settlement against Facebook. We're going to talk about how the, the cops are using some copyright enforcement technology against people trying to film them. We're going to talk about some new surveillance threats coming from a company that is wanting to track people coming in and out of neighborhoods, but to do it on a huge scale. And then, you know, the vaccines are coming, which is great, but uh, it looks like a lot of the pharmacies now that are going to be giving them out are taking this opportunity to mine your data, which is horrible. Firefox has got some interesting new tracking technology, anti-tracking technology built into the browser. We're going to talk about what that is and talk about cookies just in general uh, that they've been in the news a lot lately because Google Chrome has finally said that they're going to stop support for third-party cookies, but as you might expect, there's there's more to it than that. So we're going to talk about both of those things. Then we're going to talk about a really, really nasty, insidious technique that ad tech companies are using to track you to to work around the fact that we're all starting to block these third-party cookies, which was the go-to method for so long. You know, then there was fingerprinting, and now there's this next technique involving a little loophole in DNS that is going to cause some major, major problems, not just privacy, but security problems. And then finally, as promised, we're going to talk about some changes that LastPass has made recently, uh, along with some privacy issues that were brought up against LastPass Android app. That is going to lead into my tip of the week, which is going to be talking about other password managers you might want to consider, which makes me sad. But that's where we're at. So anyway, lots to get to. Let's get right to it. All right, first up, Facebook and Google have been in the news mostly, <laughs> no pun intended, in Australia because... Australia was set to pass a law be, at the behest of basically Rupert Murdoch, mostly, but news agencies within Australia basically saying that Facebook and Google are robbing them of their much-needed ad revenue, which 
I can see where they're coming from, but the solution seems kind of weird. Basically, what they're saying is they want to force Facebook and Google to kick back some of the ad revenue they're getting. And the way I understand it is because when you link to an article on Facebook or Google search, you get snippets of the news. So while you're still on Facebook or while you're still on Google, you're able to read a portion of the article without actually going to the site where the link leads to. And of course, while you're there, you're getting served ads by Facebook and Google, but you're not seeing ads in the, the companies that actually own the content that they're linking to are not getting any cut of that revenue. So I can, you know, I, I see where they're coming from, but this has really been boiling over the last few weeks. And Google and Facebook initially said that, okay, well, if you enact this law, we're just going to not be available in Australia. Like Google search would turn off. Facebook would not let you post any links to any news articles. And Facebook did go through with that. And Google didn't. Google changed their minds and decided to work out an agreement with um, some of the local news providers in Australia. And I'm not sure that the details of this were made public, but basically they were going to give them a cut of some money somehow. I think this law just passed. It's got this weird thing where they're going to reevaluate it in a year, I think. And I think basically the, they, after some pushback from Facebook and Google and others, they put in some provision that basically said, if you, you know, work out side deals to give some, you know, some of this royalties, basically uh, cut a cut of this profits back to some of these organizations, then, you know, we won't ban you. So anyway, I don't want to, you know, read articles or whatever. That's basically what's what what it is in a nutshell. I don't know if this is going to have implications anywhere else. I don't know if other news organizations around the world are going to try to get similar laws enacted. But you know, the whole business model based on ads is is really in trouble, and we're going to need to find some other way to monetize the internet. And we'll you'll find out more about that in some of the later stories we got coming up. Ads is well, ads really aren't the problem; it's the tracking. But in this case, with uh, in Australia, it actually is the ads that are a problem because if you're not showing people the ads, then you can't make any revenue off those ads. So anyway, interesting, but that's about all I'm going to say about that. All right, next up, a brief update on the SolarWinds hack. Um, this is still probably going to go down as one of the biggest espionage attacks of all time. And we still believe it's Russia, and we still are trying to unwind everything that happened and trying to go through all the affected systems and make sure that they're no longer compromised, which is going to take years and lots and lots of money. But the thing that came up recently uh, during congressional testimony on this was that the SolarWinds blamed an intern for setting one of their key passwords to SolarWinds123, which is obviously a horrible password. And not only that, but many people were aware of this, and that password was made public on a public GitHub server and so that's horrible. Now, I've heard varying things about this. One being that that password was not something that could have been used to compromise the systems that were compromised. So it's maybe a side thing, but it's still indicative of the fact that their security practices were horrible. So anyway, it, and I also think that I heard somewhere that that, that password predated the intern, but it doesn't matter if the intern did it. I mean, you got to ask, you know, how that was allowed to happen at all. And, and, other people knew that this was the password. It wasn't, you know, it's in a lot of these cases, we have to stop blaming the person who did it because in many of these cases, it shouldn't have been possible to do. 
So anyway, that's really all I'm going to say about that, but you may have heard about it, so I wanted to bring that up. All right, now let's get into some news where I want to go a little more in depth. I'll read, read you some articles about these things. This next one's from Naked Security, which is the Sophos, Sophos security blog. Uh, and with tax season uh, right around the corner here in the U.S., and I guess I'm not really familiar with tax practices elsewhere, but since they're usually calendar year-based, it's not surprising that, you know, right after January 1st is when people start thinking about taxes, and therefore that's when the bad guys start cranking out the tax scams. So this article is actually referencing things that are going on in the U.K., but it's really applicable anywhere. So um, let me read this article from Naked Security. Every month of the year has some sort of tax relevance somewhere in the world, and tax-scamming cybercrooks take advantage of the many different regional tax filing seasons to customize their criminality to where you live. In the UK, the 2019-2020 tax year ended on April 5th, 2020, and the deadline for filing your taxes was January 31st, 2021, or as the article writes it, 31 January. Sorry, that's my... <laughs> But it's my Americanism uh, coming in here. With a January filing deadline, it's not surprising for UK tax refund scams to kick in about now. After all, everyone loves a refund, although they're usually very modest in the UK if you get one at all, because your employer, if you have one, is supposed to get the tax calculations that they do on your behalf pretty close to the target. So we weren't surprised, although we were disappointed, to receive our first SMS-based tax scam of the season last night, helpfully submitted by a Naked Security reader. And then they show a picture here of what the text looked like, but I'll just read it to you. It says, A tax rebate of £278.44 has been issued to you for an overpayment in the year 2019-2020. Please click the link to proceed. And then the link it goes to someplace that looks like it goes to the HMRC, which is short for Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, which is, I guess, similar to the IRS here in the United States. Back to the article. As regular Naked Security readers will know, there's still a significant sector of cyber underworld that goes in for smishing, as SMS-based phishing attacks are colloquially... Wow, that's hard to say. Colloquially, colloquially known for three simple reasons. One, everyone with a mobile phone can receive SMS messages. There's no need to guess which internet-based messaging apps you're signed up for because anyone with a phone who can receive calls can also receive SMSs. Two, SMSs are limited to 160 characters, including any web links. So there's much less room for crooks to make spelling and grammatical errors, and they don't need to bother with all the formalized cultural pleasantries, such as dear your actual name, that you'd expect in an email. And three, links and phone messages take you straight to your phone's web browser. Mobile browsers generally have much less screen space to show you the sort of security details that you can access from your laptop browser. Once you've tapped on the link and the browser window has filled the screen, it's harder to spot that you are on an imposter site. In this scam, we have to admit that the crooks pulled off a surprisingly believable sequences of, sequence of web pages. Not perfect, but visually believable nevertheless. Their pages look similar to the pages you've, you've, you'd see on a genuine UK government site. They've included niceties such as a coronavirus warning in order to add a touch of timely realism. They've mostly used the right sort of terminology, such as remembering to ask for your national insurance number instead of your social security number. And they've remembered not to put a Z in the word organization, in other words, to use the British spelling. Fortunately, however, they were stuck with a bogus website name because although it's easy to register .com and .co.uk domains in the UK, the .dove.uk domain has a strict registration process that a cyber crook would find hard to bypass. Also, as you will see, if you take the time to check really carefully, and of course they've got images here which you, can, which you can't see, so they tell you to read it very closely, which I'll do for you. 
If you look really closely, the crooks have made various mistakes, such as spelling errors, that you would not expect on a website such as HMRC's. In this scam, the crooks also decided to take you straight to a bogus tax-related page. However, the UK government gateway would take you would make you log in first, including using two-factor authentication, which would give you a different user experience. You might think that two-factor authentication is a hassle you could do without, but you can actually turn the hiccup that puts it in your way to your advantage. Whenever your workflow is interrupted by a two-factor authentication request, for example, to retrieve a text message code or open up an authenticator app, use it as a reminder to implement the stop, think, connect principle and take some extra time to look again at all the security indicators you can find before you put in the 2FA code. Check the address bar. Go back and review which links you clicked to get there. Take another look for giveaway mistakes in the messages and web pages you've seen so far. The first phishing page asks for quite a lot of personal data. Then the crooks go after your bank account and credit card details. If you didn't realize before, you should figure this is a scam at this point because there's simply no reason for anyone to ask you for your credit card data in order to make a refund to your bank account. In particular, the CVV code, usually three digits on the back of your card, is used for verifying online payments, and in this case, you aren't paying for anything. Next comes a rather neat decoy page, a sort of polite placeholder page that brings this fraudulent process to a believable finish, along with a believable reason to discourage you from checking up right away with the real HMRC website. And then I will have to read this to you. This is a picture of a confirmation page, and it says, thank you for providing us with the required details. We will check your information against our criteria to assess how much refund you are entitled to. Please bear with us as we assess and release these funds to your bank account within the next 10 to 14 days. In the meantime, please follow the COVID-19 guidelines in your area. After a few seconds, the final fake page above redirects you to the official UK government gateway homepage and wipes out your browser history so far. And by the way, web pages can do that. They can affect your browser history. If you've ever been to a page that you find hard to leave, that's because sometimes these pages throw on some extra page history and you're basically in your back button to make it that much harder to back out. Like it's one click to get in and three or four to get back out. Anyway, it, it sums up here with uh, you know, what to do. And of course, one of the things they recommend is using Sophos, but I'll skip that and give you my own recommendations. Uh, so first of all, never click the links. Just go to the website manually. Uh, if you get something believable that you think is from the government agency, or for that matter, eBay or Amazon or PayPal or whatever, don't click the link they give you. Just go directly to the website yourself. Type in the web address, for you know the government website, uh, log into your account, and certainly if there's something there you, you need to be aware of, there'll be some sort of a notification for you waiting there. Or if you want, call them. In this case, and if it's a government agency, you just call them up directly and talk to a human. It might take you a while to get in, but you know you can verify that any of the if, whether or not any of this stuff is true by calling the the direct number. And again, don't use any number that they give you in the email or the SMS message. Look it up yourself. All right, next up, look for obvious giveaways. Now, spelling mistakes are a big one. Uh, or misuse of a of an idiom is common. You know, if they don't use your full name or a valid account number, if the URLs, the web links are kind of weird, check those very carefully. And, you know, if they're just asking for information that they really shouldn't need, these should all be uh, red flags. Also, beware of really urgent requests that require you to act quickly or if some, you know, something really bad will happen if you don't. You know, any really, especially in tax cases, because any real tax-related issue is probably going to take you weeks to resolve. Uh, and they would usually mail you something, like physical mail, to deal with stuff like this. That, that's also true of any other legal trouble you're going to be in. There's, there's never going to be a case, at least <laughs> no real case, where they're going to demand that you do something right away or you're going to go to jail or you're going to have to pay a fine. There's always due process. All right, moving on. Let's go to this next story. 
So this is about Amazon Echo products and the A word that I'm not going to say. So again, <laughs> so I don't trip up your devices, trigger your devices. And there's some real security and privacy issues here that I'm glad that they're bringing up. So let, let's read this article from HelpNet Security. All right, I'm going to do my best to say the word Alamo instead of Alexa. I don't know if that's going to work, but in my head, I'm going to try to say that instead of a word or whatever while I read this article. Okay. With the voice commands Alamo skills, users can load numerous extra functions onto their Amazon voice assistant. Amazon screens special voice assistant functions for security. However, scammers can circumvent this check. These skills can often have security gaps and data protection problems as a team of researchers from, and I'm going to get this wrong, so it looks like a German name, Horst Gerst Institute uh, for IT Security at the Ruhr Jurnivasat Bochum, which is shortened to RUB, uh, and I get this one right, North Carolina State University, as these two research agencies discovered, together with a former PhD student who started working for Google during the project. In their study, the researchers around uh, Christopher Lynch and Dr. Martin, Martin de Gelling studied for the first time the ecosystem of the Alamo skills. These voice commands are developed not only by the U.S. tech company Amazon itself, but also by external providers. Users can download them at the store operated by Amazon directly, and in some cases, they are also activated automatically by Amazon. The researchers obtained and analyzed 90,194 skills from the stores in seven country platforms. They found significant deficiencies for safe use. And this is a quote from uh, de Geeling, quote, A first problem is that Amazon has partially activated skills automatically since 2017. Previously, users had to agree to the use of each skill. Now they hardly have an overview of where the answer Alamo gives them comes from or who programmed it in the first place, unquote. Unfortunately, it's often unclear which skill is activated at what time. For example, if you ask Alamo for a compliment, you may get a response from 31 different providers, but it's not immediately clear which one is automatically selected. Data that is needed for the technical implementation of the commands can be unintentionally forwarded to external providers. And by external, I think they mean non-Amazon. And here's another quote from DeGeeling. He says, quote, Furthermore, we can prove that Amazon can be published under a false identity. Well-known automotive companies, for example, make voice commands available for their smart systems. Users download these believing that the company itself has provided these skills, but that is not always the case, unquote. Although Amazon checks all skills offered in a certification process, this so-called skill squatting, i.e. the adoption of already existing provider names and functions, is often not noticeable. And another quote, it says, In an experiment, we were able to publish skills in the name of a large company. Valuable information from users can be tapped here, unquote. So, if an automotive supplier has not yet developed a skill for its smart system in the car to turn up or turn down the music in the car, for example, attackers would be able to do so under the supplier's name. And by the way, you, there are devices and ways in which you can use Alamo in your car, which is probably what they're referring to here. Quoting again, quote, They exploit users' trust in the well-known name and in Amazon to tap into personal information such as location data and user behavior. Our study showed that the skills could be changed by the providers afterward, unquote. And the researchers also identified another security risk, quoting again from a different person. Our study also shows that the skills could be changed by the providers afterward, unquote. This vulnerability places the security of the previous certification process on the part of Amazon into another perspective. And quoting again, sorry, there's lots of quotes here, quote, attackers could reprogram their voice command after a while to ask for users' credit card data, for example, unquote. 
Amazon's testing usually catches such prompts and does not allow them. The trick of changing the program afterward can bypass this control. By trusting the abused provider name in Amazon, numerous users could be fooled by this trick. In addition to these security risks, the research team also identified significant lacks in general data protection declaration for the skills. For example, only 24.2% of the skills have a so-called privacy policy at all, and even fewer in the particularly sensitive areas of kids and health and fitness. Especially here, there should be strong improvements, the researcher says. Amazon has confirmed some of the problems to the research team and says it's working on countermeasures. So the bad guys are going to search out and find weaknesses, and and there are several technical areas that have been gaining popularity that were kind of off the radar for a while. And, you know, things like digital assistance is one, especially when you can have plugins that allow you to put someone else's code into that system. So uh, I guess the bottom line is if you use an Amazon Echo uh, Alamo-based product, you might want to go, I think you have to do this in the Amazon app, go into the Amazon app that lets you kind of control and configure it and you know, review all the skills that are there and make sure that you want them on and running. Apparently, Amazon is turning some of them on by default without asking, so that's not good. So you might want to review and see which of those are active and disable or remove anything you don't want. All right, next up, this is, you probably have seen this one in the news, but there's been this huge hack of Microsoft Exchange servers. And Microsoft Exchange is the name of their email server. And generally speaking, this is used in large companies. So you, if you've never heard of it, that's probably why. But anyway, Microsoft Exchange is the name of their email server, basically. Uh, also does calendaring. So there's an ongoing and enormous Microsoft Exchange server hack, and it's supposedly hit uh, up to 30,000 U.S. organizations. And it's ongoing. Um, there was a... Anyway, let me just read the article, and then we'll talk about it. This is from Apple Insider. The Hafnium hacking group in China has allegedly hacked at least 30,000 organizations in the United States using Microsoft Exchange Server, with the group said to have increased its activity in the wake of the hack's initial reports. On Wednesday, and this would have been last Wednesday, uh, on Wednesday, Microsoft disclosed evidence that Hafnium, a Chinese hacking group, was attacking servers in the United States and around the world using Microsoft Exchange Server. Microsoft also released emergency security packages to plug four security holes affecting Microsoft Exchange Server versions 2013 to 2019, which were used by the group. By Saturday, hints of the extent of the hacking spree indicated it was wide-ranging and major in scale. According to a source of Reuters on Friday, the attack has affected more than 20,000 U.S. organizations. However, two anonymous cybersecurity experts who briefed U.S. national security advisors on the attack told Krebs on Security the number is far higher in excess of 30,000 organizations. Furthermore, despite the release of patches, the experts claim the group have stepped up their attacks in a bid to gain access to unpatched exchange servers. On a global scale, the attack is said to have affected hundreds of thousands of servers. While unconfirmed, it appears that the mass hack is at a larger scale than that of SolarWinds. It is believed that more than 18,000 organizations could have been affected by that work network management software hack, the SolarWinds one. Even in the event organizations applied the patch, there is a chance that they may still be affected. As part of the hack, the group leaves behind a web shell, a hacking tool accessible from a browser that provides administrative access to servers. Organizations that apply the patches can prevent the hack from occurring, but the web shell could still be present on the system if they were hacked previously. 
It has claimed victims still running the web shell include thousands of U.S. entities, including financial institutions, charities and nonprofits, and the operations of emergency services. And here's a quote from um, Stephen Adair, whose uh, security firm Velexity, I never heard of it, um, who says, quote, even if you patched the same day Microsoft published its patches, there are still a high chance that there's a web shell on your server. The truth is, if you're running Exchange and you haven't patched this yet, there's a very high chance that your organization is already compromised, unquote. The scale of the hacks has led to the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, to issue an emergency directive ordering federal departments and agencies to update their Microsoft Exchange servers or take their servers offline. The White House press secretary has also warned that the vulnerabilities, quote, could have far-reaching impacts with the fear there could be a large number of victims, unquote. So I'm bringing this up probably, people in my audience are probably not running exchange servers, but if you happen to work in a company that does, you might want to make sure your IT department is on top of this. And uh, again, big deal. This is a huge hack. This is why we need better security. And Microsoft is no security slouch, but it just goes to show you that it's hard. It's really hard to, to defend these things. Basically, you know, as a defender, you have to be perfect. And as an attacker, you just have to succeed once. And if that success is big enough, the results could be pretty bad. So uh, we'll be dealing with the fallout of this one for a little while as well. All right, next up, let's talk about some privacy and tracking related issues. And as we've talked about in the show, Apple with iOS 14 uh, was putting out some a couple very welcome changes to enhance the user privacy. The first one was the so-called nutrition labels, which basically standardized a simple format with little icons and short bits of text that helped you understand what data is collected and who it's shared with. And there was a lot of pushback on that. <laughs> but the next one, and the next shoe that's about to drop is in a next release that we believe of iOS, which is probably 14.5, which should be out soon. They are going to require that companies that track you using this thing called IDFA or identifier for advertisers. It's a system that basically assigns you a unique ID number, which by the way, you can periodically, if you wish, go and change at any time, but it, it allows them to track you basically based on supposedly an anonymous ID number, though there's probably lots of ways to re-identify you um, based on that. So anyway, what Apple's going to be doing is they're going to be forcing uh, any of the apps that use this to pop up a window saying, do you want this app to be allowed to track you across other apps? Because obviously, if you're using the app, they, they know whatever you do in the app. Um, but this tracker would let them correlate, you know, other things that you're doing with other apps if that because that ID is used in all the apps on your phone. So all they're doing, Apple's not disabling this, all Apple is doing is popping up something to the user and giving them a choice. So apparently transparency and uh, user choice are bad things according to the ad tech industry. So we're going to talk about a few different things related to this. So first, uh, this art, this article from venture beat, I think is just <laughs> astounding. And it really goes to show how much of a big deal this is. So, uh, let me read the article. It says Apple's decision to emphasize user privacy over targeted advertising has the advertising and mobile game industries worried so much so that the ad tech companies have formed a new alliance to help address the concerns of mobile marketers and ab app publishers. Apple is changing its policy with an upcoming version of iOS 14 mobile operating system to require users to opt in if they want to share their data in the form of Identifier for Advertisers, or IDFA. 
And so the marketers and app publishers have formed the Post-IDFA Alliance. The alliance includes mobile marketing firms Liftoff, Fiber, Chartboost, Inmobi, Vungle, and Singular. I've heard of none of these, but that's not that's not uncommon. Most of these, uh, you know, data broker types and ad tech companies are behind the scenes, uh, other than Google and Facebook. So it represents a broad spectrum of companies instrumental to the mobile advertising industry, though as yet it doesn't have full representation of every mobile marketing company, nor does it have app and game publishers yet. And this is a quote from uh, one of these companies' CEOs. He says, quote, Apple's upcoming policy change regarding user tracking is a significant change for the industry. With the post-IDFA alliance, we're bringing in expertise from supply side, demand side, and measurement to arm marketers with the tools they need to navigate this shift seamlessly. We aim to ensure a smooth and successful transition with the assurance that marketing can and will continue to be just as effective in iOS in this more privacy-centric manner, unquote. Yeah, so again... uh, (laughs) This is one of the things that Facebook has been complaining about so loudly um, because basically they're all saying, oh, wait, wait, wait. If you actually give the user a transparent choice, of course they're going to say no, which completely goes against everything that they've all been saying. All these ad companies have been saying, well, you've always had the choice. That's like telling Dorothy she's always had the ability to go home. She just has to click the red slippers three times. Well, why didn't you tell me that a long time ago? So... So this is also probably why Google waited for months to update most of their iOS apps, which are typically updated like every week or two. Uh, they waited months because this new requirement came in for any updates would have to have the, you know, the nutrition label, the privacy label. So my guess and what a lot of people are speculating is that behind the scenes, they were scrambling to figure out, you know, how they could get away with, you know, showing that they're tracking as little as possible and still maintain tracking. And we're going to talk in a minute about some of the things they're doing. But again, all of this is, all of this, all this hubbub, all this creating of alliances is just because of transparency. It's just, you know, all these things were going on, but now Apple's making absolutely sure that the user is aware and has an informed choice. And that act by itself, they're not blocking it. They're not preventing it. They're just making it obvious. And then they're giving the users a choice. And most of these companies are realizing that given the choice and given the transparency, users are going to say no. And it's important to understand that unlike, say, you know, GDPR, all these pop-ups you're getting about accepting cookies. You know, if you continue to use the site, you accept the cookie policy. In a lot of these cases, you don't have a choice. It's just an OK button. In other ways, these guys use euphemistic things like, you know, we would like to provide you a customized experience or we would like to you know, make your, it's all about experience. We want to give you a better user experience, or we want to customize things for you. All these things are euphemisms for, we want to track the hell out of you so that we can show you ads that you want to see. And this just goes to show that all, all of this crap around, you know, we give the users informed consent is just BS because they don't, they really don't. And it's really, Everything should be opt-in, but at least Apple is now saying, look, if you're going to do this, you've got to give them a choice. And we're going to give them the language of making the choice, not you. So I would expect you to, if you have an iPhone or an iPad, I would expect you to start seeing these pop-ups in the next uh, month or two as whenever this rolls out. And I obviously would encourage you to say no. All right, next up, and this gives us, I guess, a little bit of hope. Facebook was just hit with a $650 million settlement for a privacy lawsuit. Let me just read a short, a very short article on this from The Guardian. It says, 
A federal judge has approved a $650 million settlement of a privacy lawsuit against Facebook for allegedly using photo face tagging and other biometric data without the permission of its users. U.S. District Judge James Donato approved the deal in a class action lawsuit that was filed in Illinois in 2015. Nearly 1.6 million Facebook users in Illinois who submitted claims will be affected. Donato called it one of the largest settlements ever for a privacy violation. And he says, quote, it will put at least $345 into the hands of every class member, member interested in being compensated. And he called it a major win for consumers in the hotly contested area of digital privacy, unquote. Jay Ellison, a Chicago attorney who filed the lawsuit, told the Chicago Tribune that the checks could be in the mail within two months unless the ruling is appealed. But as you'll see in this next quote from Facebook, it sounds like they won't. Quote, we are pleased to have reached a settlement so that we can move past this matter, which is in the best interests of our community and our shareholders, unquote. The lawsuit accused the social media giant of violating an Illinois privacy law by failing to get consent before using facial, facial recognition technology to scan photos uploaded by users to create and store faces digitally. The state's Biometric Information Privacy Act, or BIPA, allowed consumers to sue companies that didn't get permission before harvesting data such as faces and fingerprints. The case eventually wound up as a class action lawsuit in California. I'm not sure why California. Facebook has since changed its photo tagging system. So by the way, this was the same law, this Illinois BIPA law, was the same law that was the basis of the ongoing lawsuit against Clearview AI, which ironically got its data largely from Facebook. So, you know, we don't have good national privacy laws in the U.S. like they have in the EU. And until we do, it's going to be this patchwork quilt of privacy laws. And in this case, the people in Illinois got lucky because they managed to elect some representatives that put in a privacy a privacy law that let them push back on all of this crap. And so at least the people in Illinois are going to get paid for some of this. And more for the rest of us, it caused Facebook to change its policies probably for everybody, not just for people in Illinois. All right, now this next one's really interesting. And you probably haven't heard about this one. Uh, I'm going to read to uh, an article from the EFF about it. And uh, the title is, Cops Using Music to Try to Stop Being Filmed is Just the Tip of the Iceberg. So I'll read the article and we'll talk about it. Someone tries to live stream their encounters with the police only to find that the police started playing music. In the case of a February 5th meeting between an activist and the Beverly Hills Police Department, the song of choice was Sublime's Santeria. The police may not have a crystal ball, but they do seem to have an unusually strong knowledge about copyright filters. The timing of music being played when a cop saw he was being filmed was not lost on people. It seemed likely that the goal was to trigger Instagram's overly zealous copyright filter, which would shut down the stream based on the background music and not the actual content. It's not an unfamiliar tactic, and it's unfortunately one based on the reality of how copyright filters work. Copyright filters are generally more sensitive to audio content than audiovisual content. That sensitivity causes real problems for people performing, discussing, or reviewing music online. It's a problem of mechanics. It's easier to, for filters to find a match just on a piece of audio material com compared to a full audiovisual clip. And then there's the likelihood that the filter is merely checking to see if a few seconds of a video file seems to contain a few seconds of an audio file. It's part of why playing music is a better way of getting a video stream you don't want seen shut down. The other part is that playing music is easier than walking around with a screen playing a Disney film in its entirety, much fun as that would be. Copyright should not be a fast track to getting speech removed that you do not like. 
the law is meant to encourage creativity by giving artists a limited period of exclusive rights to their creations. It's not a way to make money off criticism or a loophole to be exploited by authorities. All right, so let me just back up and, and, and sum up what's going on here. And this is not an isolated incident. This is happening more and more. Um, basically, <laughs> the cops understand that live streaming applications like Facebook Live and Instagram and others that allow you to basically broadcast live video of something going on, which protesters and other folks know is a good way to try to keep, you know, authorities that are acting badly from doing bad things because they know they're being filmed, especially if they're being filmed live, because if it's being recorded, oftentimes the police will confiscate the phone and delete the file or, or whatever. Uh, so in order to block something that's being broadcast live, they figured out that most of these systems have copyright filters that are looking for copyrighted music being played. And in order to prevent, I guess, being sued by the copyright holders, they've worked out agreements with them to implement these filters that listen for copyrighted music. It's kind of like Shazam, <laughs> if you've ever used that tool, but you used to enforce copyright. And if these things detect, if these filters detect what it believes is copyrighted material being played without a license, actually it doesn't care. Uh, and it, it shuts down first, you know, and then worries about it later. Ask, you know, ask forgiveness, not permission. And so the cops know if they don't want to be filmed, by some of these things, they just broadcast copyrighted music and these filters will shut down the video for them. And obviously I agree with the EFF that that's a bad thing. So anyway, I, I just thought that was kind of fascinating. Uh, and so we obviously need severe copyright reform. Our copyrights have gotten way out of hand. I mean, if you go back and look at the history of copyright law, it was meant, I think initially copyrights were like 20 years and then they kept extending it. And one of the main reasons they extended it, frankly, was Walt Disney. Disney's got deep pockets and they've been lobbying for many decades to keep Mickey Mouse in particular copyrighted uh, and not to fall into the public domain. Because as soon as the copyright falls, anybody can turn around and do whatever they want with Mickey Mouse, which, of course, Disney doesn't want to happen. And every 20 years or so, when the law is about to, uh, when the copyright on Mickey Mouse is about to expire, which, by the way, is coming up very soon, I think it's this year, or next year, um, you watch, uh, there will be a new congressional law proposed at least to extend copyrights again to make sure that Mickey Mouse, which, you know, debuted, what, in the late 20s or 30s or something like that? So that copyright already is, what, 80, over 80 years now, which is ridiculous, to extend it further. All right, moving on. Um, here's an article from Vice or Motherboard about a system called Talon, T-A-L-O-N, which looks like it's an acronym, but I'm not sure if they ever spelled it out, about a company providing neighborhood watch systems that is turning into a massive surveillance company. So um, let me read the article and we'll talk about it. Hundreds of pages of emails obtained by Motherboard show how little-known company Flock, F-L-O-C-K, has expanded from surveilling individual neighborhoods into a network of smart cameras that spans the United States. Quote, give your neighborhood peace of mind, unquote, 
An advertisement for Flock, a line of smart surveillance cameras, reads, A February promotional video claims that the company's, quote, mission is to eliminate nonviolent crime across the country. We can only do that by working with every neighborhood and every police department throughout the country, unquote. Quietly, this seems to be happening. Flock, whose cameras use automatic license plate reader technology, ALP, is well on its way to deploying a connected network of AI-powered cameras that detect the movements of cars across the United States. The cameras, which are sold to law enforcement, homeowners associations, and businesses, can automatically record when a quote-unquote non-resident vehicle drives into a community and alert police to cars on a hot list. Communities have created quote-unquote virtual gates around their neighborhoods, with cameras capturing each vehicle driving in and out of the area. Through a program called Talon, this little-known company is allowing police officers to track cars, and by extension, specific people, outside of their own jurisdictions. Hundreds of pages of internal police emails from nearly 20 police departments around the country obtained using public records requests by Motherboard show how Flock has slowly expanded its network, helped law enforcement agencies gain access to it, and has rolled out Talon with very little fanfare. Talon gives police access to a nationwide network of cameras that have been installed by law enforcement agencies around the country. The Talon network offers up to 500 million scans of vehicles a month, according to one email obtained by Motherboard. Over 500 police departments in more than 1,000 cities have access to flock cameras, according to marketing material. In the promotional video, the company claims to be able to detect people, cars, animals, and bicycles, and said it is, quote, collecting evidence, unquote, that helps police solve four to five crimes per hour. The administrator of the neighborhood's camera network can make the flock data captures available to, say, the police, the homeowners association's board, or the individual members of an entire neighborhood. The emails also show how Flock works closely with police to try and generate positive media coverage, improve their PR strategy, and ultimately, quote, get your jurisdiction activated, unquote, and, quote, bring more private cameras into the area, unquote. In some cases, Flock has helped write press releases for the agencies the emails show. And this is a direct quote from Sergeant J.T. Maltzby uh, from the Raleigh Police Department right here in my area. In one July 2019 email to his colleagues, he says, quote, I think of it as the ring doorbell of LPR, unquote. And again, LPR is license plate reader, and ring is the Amazon video doorbell system that it has also been turning into a massive uh, surveillance network. All right, let me finish the article. Traditionally, license plate reader cameras have been the expensive property of law enforcement. But Flock's much cheaper and sometimes solar-powered $2,500 hardware, and that's annually, I guess it's subscription, has tapped a whole new market of private residents who also want to track vehicles in their neighborhoods with the goal of preventing and helping investigating crime. But beyond the cute and suburb-friendly marketing, Flock has privacy experts increasingly concerned about a pervasive, expanding network of AI-powered cameras that can be leveraged by both private residents and law enforcement. And here's a quote from uh, Dave Mass, uh, Director of Investigations at EFF. He told Motherboard, uh, quote, ALPR, and this is automatic license plate reading, ALPR is a mass surveillance technology. It does not discriminate between people who are involved in crimes and people who are innocent. It just collects data on everyone with the assumption that maybe one day you might commit a crime, unquote. Such a system, like others before, it brings up questions. Is it biased in how and where hardware is placed? Is the technology disproportionately used against cars belonging to black people and other people of color? Is the data eventually abused? 
And here we have a quote from Chris uh, Gilliard, a research fellow with the Technology and Social Change Research Project at Harvard Kennedy School's Shorenson Center. And he says, quote, my concern, much as with the ring, is that these technologies enable a massively expanded surveillance network that in most cases has little to no oversight or accountability. On top of that, I worry it creates another vector for neighborhoods and by extension law enforcement to surveil black folks who are just going about their business. We saw this recently when the LAPD requested ring video footage of Black Lives Matter protesters, unquote. And here's a quote from Nate Wessler, who we have had on the show. He's uh, with the ACLU. And he says, quote, As the Supreme Court has repeatedly explained, police access to everyone's electronically collected location history raises serious privacy concerns. License plate readers can create a precise record of where we go and when, and over time can reveal a wealth of sensitive information about our lives. It is no comfort when these devices are being deployed in supposedly piecemeal fashion by scattered private users. By providing police with an internet platform to easily stitch together information from dozens or hundreds of license plate readers without getting a search warrant from a judge, companies like Flock threaten to enable pervasive tracking of our activities and movements, unquote. The hardware can be connected to the National Crime Information Center, or the NCIC, which automatically alerts law enforcement when the camera detects someone in, the, in that database. The NCIC includes information on stolen vehicles, immigration violators, missing persons, sex offenders, gang members, and more. Flock pushes an average of 120 hot list notifications every hour according to its marketing material. With these lists, police have wide latitude to use Flock for whatever is legally permissible in their own jurisdiction. The County of San Diego document, which must have been referred to a part I cut out, also says that police departments can upload their own custom hot lists in a spreadsheet. Now, this is a really, really long story, and there's a lot more to it. I will put a link in the show notes to this, as I'm going to be doing for all articles that I read going forward. So you can always go back and see the original, because in many cases, again, I edit these down or cut them short. This, this particular article was huge, but this is certainly enough to give you an idea of what's going on and why it's important. It used to be that your license plates were read in other places, like going through a toll booth, you know, sometimes automated toll booth, and that's how they knew who to send the bill to. But, you know, even you know, toll roads as you're going through and dropping coins in a basket or handing bills to a, to a person have cameras and they will often, you know, check your license plate and put it in a, in a list of people of, you know, here's what car this was and here's when it came through. And now we're just seeing this more and more places. And again, it's if this was used strictly for the initial purpose, you know, that makes sense. If I need to send somebody a bill for a toll, fine. But now to collect all the information and store it in a database forever and make that and merge those databases across the country and then give law enforcement access to those databases, you can see how we're all being tracked all the time. And, and now these new ring is one of them. And now flock are basically appealing to neighborhoods saying, you know, you need protection, you need mass constant surveillance and by selling these systems and then networking them all together. We're enabling this new panopticon. Or actually, we've been in a panopticon for a while. It's just making it worse. There really, really has to be regulation on this stuff. And as we talked about a little bit last week, it's important for you to make your voices heard. A lot of this stuff can be blocked at a local level. So, you know, attend those town halls, you know, write to your local representatives. Because at a county and state level, a lot of work, uh, a lot of good things can still be done until we can get something together nationally. All right, so... As you know, I have been begging everybody on my audience to go get their vaccines. I still stand by that. 
But unfortunately, if you go to national pharmacy chains to do it, and uh, and I'm not saying you shouldn't, I'm just saying you need to be aware uh, that they appear to be using this as an opportunity to get a lot of your information and market to you. So this is an article from Recode or, or Vox. And it says, last November, the Trump administration announced a partnership with retail pharmacies to distribute coronavirus vaccines, which would provide people across the country with more places to get vaccines and people to administer them. That's a good thing. The other side of it is, as the Wall Street Journal pointed out this week, some pharmacies are taking advantage of the program to make extra money off of their new customers. If you schedule a COVID-19 vaccine appointment with a major pharmacy chain, such as Walgreens or CVS, your data may be used to bulk up those companies' own significant marketing apparatuses, giving them a source of income even beyond what they're being paid for administering the vaccine and whatever you might decide to buy while you're in the store or while you get one. In some cases, you're forced to make an account with the store to get a vaccine at all, and deactivating your mandatory account after the fact isn't easy. When you go to the Walgreens vaccine scheduler, you can find out if there are vaccines available in your area, but you can't see where and when appointments are available, let alone schedule one, without first making a Walgreens account. And that means giving Walgreens the information it considers necessary to make that account, including your name, date of birth, phone number, address, gender, and an email address. You're also automatically signing up to receive marketing emails, which you can only opt out of later through your account settings. Oh, and you're encouraged to join the My Walgreens Loyalty Program, which gives Walgreens even more data about your purchases and automatically signs you up for even more marketing emails. This doesn't apply to all the data you provide. Any information you give for the purposes of getting a vaccine at a pharmacy is protected by the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA. But the data that isn't protected can be valuable to the retail pharmacies you give it to. Walgreens, for instance, will use the data to target ads to you on its website, on social media, and in marketing emails as detailed in Walgreens' own privacy policy. Walgreens makes it easy to sign up for all of this and is particularly aggressive when it comes to data demands in general. For instance, it now forces customers to provide a valid email address to enroll in its My Walgreens loyalty program, which tracks all purchases made on your My Walgreens card. By the way, Walgreens also recently announced in its Walgreens advertising group a, quote, modern, full-service, personalization-driven advertising offering rooted in insights and rich first-party data, unquote, advertisers can use to target ads to you. The source of that rich first-party data? That would be the loyalty program. What's not so easy is deactivating your Walgreens account if you so choose after you've gotten your vaccine. In fact, you can't even do it online. You have to call Walgreens customer service. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, told Recode that its agreement with participating pharmacies asked them to use an online scheduling system for vaccine appointments for social distancing purposes, and it lets pharmacies use their own. So Walgreens used its existing system, which requires patients to make an account. Walmart did the same, though at least it offers patients the ability to opt out of receiving marketing emails when they register, and doesn't require anything beyond a name and an email to create an account. As was the case with Walgreens, getting rid of your Walmart account once you no longer need it is a more onerous process than creating it. In its instructions for how to close your account, Walmart simply says to, quote, contact our customer care team for assistance, unquote, without providing instructions on how to do that. But if you scroll down the page a bit, you'll see a, quote, unquote, contact us button. Click that and tell the chat bot that will pop up that you want to deactivate your account and then pick your preferred method of contact, online chat, phone, or email. This will take several minutes, but your account will be deactivated. I note that it says deactivated, not deleted. That's probably an important distinction. 
Rite Aid and CVS, who, along with Walgreens and Walmart, get the majority of the vaccines distributed through the program, told Recode that they don't require patients to sign up for an account to get a vaccine, but neither responded to follow-up questions about if they collect data from patients for non-vaccine purposes, how it might be used, and if there's a way to opt out of data collection or delete whatever data has already been collected. CVS did tell the Wall Street Journal that it would, quote-unquote, stay in touch with customers after they received their second shot and hoped to market products to them. The company also said it would encourage patients to join CVS's loyalty program while they were at the vaccine appointments. Similar to Walgreens, CVS has an advertising arm announced last August, which relies on collected data through its loyalty program. Recode also reached out to several other companies that the federal government has partnered with to provide vaccines, including Albertsons, Costco, Kroger, and Publix, for comment on if and how they were collecting data on their patients. Costco was the only one to respond, saying that it appreciated my quote-unquote interest and support and had no comment. All that said, get the vaccine. Yes, you may have to sign up for a store account first, and that's not ideal. Yes, it would be nice if the government had put some restrictions in place so retail pharmacies weren't allowed to collect and use your data in this way. And yes, some pharmacies are taking advantage of a terrible situation to profit off of you because businesses will do everything they can to make money and your data is valuable. But your life and your health are even more valuable, even if you have to make some privacy compromises to preserve them. Yeah, so I have to agree with that last sentiment. It's really crappy that you have to do this. There should be stipulations in place that would prevented this but there weren't. Uh, and if you've already gotten one and you're probably already in the system, I would just, I guess, recommend that you try to get out if you don't want it. And, you know, and I guess in general, if you haven't, if you're not already aware, all these loyalty programs where you get discounts and coupons and stuff by giving them your phone number or your email address, it's all about tracking you. So that when you go through the store and you check out at the checkout line and you give them your new number, and I do this at one store, I do this at my grocery store, which I go to all the time, but I know that they're selling that information. Now, there was a trick I read about a long time ago, and I don't. it's actually in the book, and I'm not sure if this still works. But if you are old enough to remember the song Jenny uh, from the 1980s, that song contained a phone number, 8675309. Uh, and supposedly, uh, that number was so popular, and a lot of people didn't want to be tracked, that many of the national chains you've been to, somewhere, someone has registered that phone number in the loyalty program so that if you go through the line and the checkout line and say, do you have your phone number? I guess you'd give it maybe your local area code and then eight, six, seven, five, three, nine, uh, and see if that works. <laughs> and if it does, you may get access to all the benefits of the loyalty program without actually being tracked. All right, next up, here's some good news. Uh, Firefox has come out with a brand new tracking protection that is really cool. And I honestly, it seems such a no brainer. I wish they'd done it a long time ago. This is a very short read uh, from Engadget. Uh, It says, Mozilla is adding a new tool to Firefox aimed at stopping cookies from keeping tabs on you across multiple sites. The total cookie protection feature is included in the web browser's latest release, which is out now, and essentially works by keeping cookies isolated between each site you visit. Or in Mozilla's words, quote, by creating a separate cookie jar for every website, unquote. Cookies, for the uninitiated, are text files containing small pieces of data that can be used to identify your computer. And I'm going to get into this in just a second. We're going to talk a lot about cookies. Though they were designed to improve your web browsing experience, they can also be used to monitor your online activity without your consent. 
Google is also working on a plan to kill off third-party cookie tracking on its Chrome web browser as part of its Privacy Sandbox project, an initiative that seeks to allow personalized ads while limiting individual identifying data, and I'll talk about that as well. Firefox's new feature pairs with last month's network partitioning tool, which works by splitting the Firefox browser cache on a per-website basis to prevent tracking across the web, itself targeted at ad-blocking uh, more stubborn quote-unquote super cookies, super cookies. According to Mozilla, these types of cookies are more difficult to delete and block as they are stored in obscure parts of the browser, including in flash storage, e-tags, and HSTS flags, which don't worry about what those are. Both tools are available as part of Firefox's enhanced tracking protection suite in strict mode on desktop and Android. Okay, so let's summarize. And let's let's just, let's back way up and let's talk about cookies. This is something we haven't talked about for a while, and I think there's some confusion around this particularly in the realm of first-party versus third-party. So what are cookies? Cookies are little bits of data that are left on your computer by websites that you go to. Uh, initially, this was done as a way to do things like login. So if you go to yahoo.com and log in, it drops a little token in a text file, and that text file is called a cookie, on your computer in your browser's cache. And so that when you go back to that website... Yahoo says, all right, give me all of my cookies. You give them back this access token. And then Yahoo could say, okay, this person's already logged in. I don't need to make them log in again. So it's a way to remember that you've logged in. And it's specific to the device you're logging in from. So if you think about that, if you're authenticating to Yahoo and you're on your laptop, let's say, and you log in on your laptop and Yahoo, you don't want that associated with your account. You want that associated with that particular browser on that particular device. Because if you then turn around and go to a desktop computer and log in, you're not still logged into Yahoo. And you don't want that, right? Because, you know, someone else uh, might be able to go and claim they're you. Uh, and then you'd say, oh, that's all right. This person's already logged in somewhere else. I'll let you log in here. I'll let you access here as well. You don't want that. So the other thing it often would do is help remember certain website preferences or maybe contents of your shopping cart sometimes. So that, you know, it's history, it's, it's state, as we like to say, uh, for a state machine in the software business. And it just makes more sense for these websites you visit to have that information, that state, that history stored with you instead of stored with them. So those are first party cookies. Any cookies, when you go to example.com and example.com drops a cookie on your computer, those are first-party cookies, so that when you go back to example.com again in the future, example.com can ask and say, hey, what cookies have I stored for this person? Uh, and then remember, via doing this, whatever state things were in the last time you were there. Now, enter third-party cookies. As I've said many times, web pages you go to today are not monolithic. They're actually a massive patchwork quilt of little pieces and snippets of web code could be pictures, could be text, could be videos, lots of things from multiple places. So those other places, often advertising places are third parties. So if I'm going to example.com, but that web page that I'm going to has an ad on it somewhere, that ad is being served from, you know, advertiser.com. But it's all part of the same web page. And so advertiser.com can also drop a cookie on your browser because you loaded their ad and accessed a resource on their system. The HTTP protocol has this method for allowing any access like that, any request 
to, in the response, drop this little data thing on your computer. And this has been exploited for many, many years. This was the original way that things tracked you around the web. When you went and searched Google for tennis shoes and then went to another site and all of a sudden are, are remarkably getting a bunch of advertisements for tennis shoes, that's why. Because when you went to google.com and searched for tennis shoes, Google... Google's ad company, which was, um, ad click or ad click. Anyway, AdWords, double click, um, their advertising company, uh, would be part of that Google search page as a third party. In this case, even though it's owned by Google, it's not google.com. So it's technically a third party would drop a cookie on your computer saying this person just searched for shoes or more likely uh, drops a unique identifier on you. And then back up in the cloud remembers that this identifier just recently searched on shoes. And then, so when you go to example.com and there's a little ad banner space that they rent out to some advertising company, in this case, Google, Google again, is that same third party. It's advertiser.com basically is serving up that banner. So it's the same company and only the company that dropped a cookie can request their cookies. But that company was present on both websites, even if you didn't know it. So when you go to that other site, that third party, who's a part of the patchwork quilt of both websites, says, give me all the cookies you have of this guy. Oh, I know this guy. This is Kerry Parker. He was just on some, some of these other sites and was looking for shoes. Let's give this guy an ad for shoes. So that is the difference between first and third party cookies in a nutshell. And basically what it boils down to is that first party cookies are good. They, they make sense. These are things that you want to have the website that you go to, the one you explicitly put in the, in your address bar, it makes sense for them to remember things about you and you want them to have a history with you. So you don't have to log in every time you go there. So that if you forget something in your shopping cart and go back, it's still there. So that if you set preferences, you know, I want my mail to be in compact view that when you go back again, it remembers that's what you want. That all makes sense. The problem is third-party cookies, because really the only, almost 99% of the time, the only use for third-party cookies is for tracking now, which is why Safari and Firefox and all the other browsers, except Chrome until soon, have just decided, you know what, we're just going to block all third-party cookies, or at least give you the option to do this. So what Firefox is doing to help prevent tracking even further is it is making sure that when you go to google.com and advertiser.com, it's actually double click or something like that, drops a third party cookie on you saying, here's what this person just searched for. And here's his unique ID or whatever. That that third party cookie gets put in a specific cookie jar associated with google.com. And so when you go to some other website that also happens to be serving ads from advertisement.com or, or doubleclick.com or whatever, when DoubleClick asks your web browser for whatever cookies have been left behind by it before, it will not see the cookies that were left when you were at some other website. It can get any cookies that were left when you were on the site you're going to now, but it can't cross correlate you with other websites. It's just brilliant. And note that currently to get this behavior, you had to go into Firefox and turn your privacy settings to strict mode, which I recommend that everybody do. All right. So let's talk about this thing where uh, and this has probably made the, the news. I don't know if you saw it, but Google is now saying we are also going, we are also in Chrome, the most popular browser on the planet, going to be starting to phase out third-party cookies as well. And I, there's a lot of articles I could have read about this because uh, there's a lot in the news right now, um, but I'm just going to talk about it. 
So here's the problem. Google is one of the biggest advertising companies on the planet. They make, last I read, over 90% of their revenue is from ads. They are an ad company who just happens to make calendars and emails and searches and docs and other things. They're an advertising company. And they make Chrome, the browser. They also make Android, the, the smartphone operating system. And so they have their fingers everywhere. And for them to come out and say that the Chrome browser is going to start blocking third-party cookies, and which, by the way, it's not immediate. It's going to be, uh, I don't even know if they give you the option. They probably do, but they're not going to do it by default yet. They're saying, okay, we are a privacy-respecting company, which is BS on its face. And they're saying we're going to start blocking third-party cookies, and they're going to implement this new system called Flock, which is a different Flock than the one we just talked about. This is actually an acronym, F-L-O-C, and I forget what it is. We're actually probably going to end up doing an entire episode on this at some point. Maybe I'll come bring somebody on to talk about it. What they're trying to do instead, supposedly to help preserve your privacy, is not to track you individually, but put you into buckets, cohorts. Uh, they are going to monitor your web browsing habits and put you into currently one of 256 bins based on your web browsing habits. And supposedly, this system will make sure that there are at least thousands of people in that bin with you so that you will blend in in the crowd and not stand out, and therefore you will personally not be tracked. It's an interesting idea. Uh, I think it's at least a step in the right direction. And we'll get into this technology more at some point, but here's the point I want to bring home now. You know, Google saying that they're going to remove third-party cookie support in Chrome or block them in Chrome is really kind of silly. All it really means is they're going to prevent other advertising agencies from benefiting from third-party cookies. You're already using Google's browser. They don't need cookies. <laughs> they already know everything you're doing in that web browser. So it really, at the, at the end of the day, is in their own best business interest at this point. By eliminating the simple techniques that everybody is using to track you and leaving only the more complicated ones that they can perform and nobody else can form because they are in a privileged position relative to you tracking you makes this whole argument about being privacy focused and doing this for your benefit as, as just silly. So whenever you see news articles breathlessly talking about how Google has, has had a change of heart and how they're out there. And if you read their press press um, release on this, it says all the right things, but you can so easily parse these words to mean something else or find loopholes that you can drive a truck through. And, you know, so basically on one hand, they're doing something that looks really good, but what you're not seeing is on the other hand, they're still doing all the things that they used to do or finding some other way to do it that ultimately will benefit them and probably hurt their ad tech peers. So, uh, and again, just remember that whenever you're using Google Chrome or using Android or Google Search, Google Docs, Gmail, Google Calendar, Waze, all of these companies that Google owns you are feeding them more and more data about you. And we actually had a whole tip of the week on this recently, and I've got a whole blog article on Google alternatives. So uh, if you go to firewallstonesubdragons.com and search on Google, you'll find the article. All right. Now, this next article is really disturbing, and it's going to... My challenge is to explain it in the way that you understand how disturbing it is, because it's very technical, unfortunately. So let me see if I can explain this so that you can understand. And this really screws up everything I just talked about when evaluating first and third party cookies. But it's more than a privacy problem, it's a huge security problem. 
So uh, I'm going to read a little bit here from this article from The Hacker News. With browser makers steadily clamping down on third-party tracking, advertising technology companies are increasingly embracing a DNS technique to evade such defenses, thereby posing a threat to web security and privacy. And real quick, DNS is domain name service. That is the phone book of the internet, such that when you type in Amazon.com, it gives an IP address. Which So every website you ever go to has to do this lookup first. Back to the article. Over the past four years, all major browsers, with the notable exception of Google Chrome, have included countermeasures to curb third-party tracking. Although Google early last year announced plans to phase out third-party cookies and trackers in Chrome in favor of a new framework called the Privacy Sandbox, it's not expected to go live until sometime in 2022. In the face of these cookie-killing barriers to enhance privacy, marketers have begun looking for alternative ways to evade the absolutist stance taken by browser makers against cross-site tracking. Enter canonical name cloaking, or CNAME cloaking, where websites use first-party subdomains as aliases for third-party tracking domains via CNAME records in their DNS configuration in order to circumvent tracker blockers. I know, that was a mouthful. Hold on, I'll explain a little bit. The article talks about it some too, but I'll, I'll go over this one when I'm done with the article. CNAME records in DNS allow for mapping a domain or subdomain to another, i.e. an alias, thus making them an ideal means to smuggle tracking code under the guise of a first-party subdomain. And here's a quote from uh, John Willander, who's a WebKit security engineer, and he says, quote, This means a site owner can configure one of their subdomains, such as sub.blog.example, to resolve to third-party.example before resolving to an IP address. This happens underneath the web layer and is called CNAME cloaking. The third-party.example domain is cloaked as sub.blog.example and thus has the same powers as the true first-party, unquote. In other words... CNAME cloaking makes tracking code look like it's a first party when in fact it's not, with the resource resolving through a CNAME that differs from that of the first party domain. Not surprisingly, this tracking scheme is rapidly gaining traction, growing by 21% over the last 22 months. The researchers in their study found that this technique is being used on 9.98, basically 10% of the top 10,000 websites, in addition to uncovering 13 providers of such tracking services on 10,474 websites. Perhaps the most troubling of the revelations is that cookie data leaks were found on, on 7,377 sites, or 95% of the 7,797 sites, that used CNAME tracking, all of which sent cookies containing private information, such as full names, locations, email addresses, and even authentication cookies to trackers of other domains without the user's explicit affirmation. With CNAME trackers included over HTTP as opposed to HTTPS, the researchers also raised the possibility that a request sending analytics data to the tracker could be intercepted by a malicious adversary in what's called a man-in-the-middle attack. Furthermore, the increased attack service posed by including a tracker as same site would expose the data of websites' visitors to session fixation and cross-site scripting attacks, they caution. And I'll, again, I'll talk about this in a minute. 
So what can you do? While Firefox doesn't ban CNAME cloaking out of the box, users can download an add-on like uBlock Origin, which I've talked about many times, to block such sneaky first-party trackers. Incidentally, the company yesterday began rolling out Firefox 86 with total cookie protection that prevents cross-site tracking by, quote, confining all cookies from each website to a separate cookie jar, unquote, which is what we just talked about. On the other hand, Apple's iOS 14 and macOS Big Sur come with additional safeguards that build upon its ITP feature, which is uh, intelligent tracking, uh, tracking protection, to shield third-party CNAME cloaking, although it doesn't offer a means to unmask the tracker domain and block it outright at the outset. And then another quote from Willander, he says, quote, ITP now detects third-party CNAME cloaking results and concaps the expiry of any cookies set in the HTTP response to seven days. Chrome, and by extension other Chromium-based browsers like Microsoft Edge, is the only glaring omission as it neither blocks CNAME cloaking natively nor makes it easy for third-party extensions to resolve DNS queries by fetching the CNAME records before a request is sent, unlike Firefox. And this is a quote from another security guy. He says, quote, The emerging CNAME tracking technique evades anti-tracking measures. It introduces serious security and privacy issues, user data is leaking persistently and consistently without user awareness or consent. This likely triggers GDPR and e-privacy-related clauses. In a way, this is the new low, unquote. Okay, so um, I know this sounds like a lot of gobbledygook, um, and it is. <laughs> but this is how the web works, and because all the simple, straightforward means of tracking are being shut down, these ad tech companies are going to much greater lengths in this cat and mouse game to find other ways to track you. Uh, one of the first ones was fingerprinting, which is where they use several techniques to look at your web browser and anything that your web browser will tell you about your computer or device to create a unique snapshot of who you are. And that could be you know, what fonts you have installed, how big your screen is, what your operating system and operating system version is, what your browser and browser version are. And that's just scratching the surface. There are several things trying to be helpful that your web browser gives to websites to help them give you back the best response. You know, are you on a mobile phone or are you on a computer? How big is your screen? But when taken together and looked at as a whole, all these individual bits of data add up to make you look unique compared to somebody else making the same request to the same website. And there are things being done by Firefox and Safari to try to break fingerprinting. But... Now they've come up with this other thing that exploits what was supposed to be a feature of the DNS system. And this domain name lookup, again, if you go to amazon.com and it gives you back an IP address, that's through a service called DNS, domain name service. The DNS protocol has this ability to also say, well, anything that, you know, if you go to abc.amazon.com and you look that up in DNS, I want to give you an IP address for that as well. And it might be a different address. And you'll see this if you look carefully at some of the uh, websites you go to. It's not just something dot something. It's often something dot something dot something. And that extra thing up in front makes it a subdomain of the overall domain. So because, as we talked about, with the differentiating third party from first party cookies is, again, if you go to example.com and that example.com has a web banner advertising from advertisement.com on it. And then you go to some other example2.com, but that site also has contracted with advertiser.com to show ads. Uh, that third party 
on both of those two first-party sites can drop a cookie and access those cookies again later. What it's not supposed to be able to do is access cookies from any other website, uh, the other two first-party domains that you went to. Advertising.com should never be able to get to the cookies of example.com or example2.com. But by colluding with these websites, and it takes collusion because the people who own the DNS entry, in this case example and example2.com, they work with the advertisers and the advertisers say, hey, if you want to keep using us, you need to go add these new subdomain entries uh, in your CNAME list on your DNS entry so that when you go to this new subdomain, which, you know, we will claim to be from, this ad will initially in the web browser, if you look under the covers, will say, I want you to, you know, load this ad from advertisement.example.com. So, the way that's supposed to work is that that is part of the first party that is from example.com. But what the collusion says is, okay, when your website shows this ad and wants to get it from advertisement.example.com in your DNS CNAME entry, we want you to redirect them to advertisement.com, a third party. Yes. So what that means is with this technique, with any websites that agree to go along with it, and it's They'll probably, a lot of them already have. They're basically allowing these advertising companies to come off as a first party when they are really third parties. So it's bad enough that this is going to allow them to track you. That's the privacy problem. Here's the security problem. If I've logged into example.com and example.com drops a cookie on my machine with a token that lasts for two weeks saying for the next two weeks, this guy's good. He doesn't have to log in again. If now advertisement.com can get access to that cookie, they can act as you, as if you're logged in anywhere on the web. And from a privacy perspective, they can also get access to whatever whatever information you have stored on example.com. Maybe it's contents of a shopping cart. Maybe it's your preferences for how you want to view the page or any other data that example.com has left on your computer in their relationship with you to try to better your experience with example.com, which could be some very personal data, which you'd be fine with example.com knowing you gave them that information. So it makes sense for them to have access to it. But with this new CNAME cloaking technique, advertisement.com can pose as example.com and get access to all that same data. So I'm sure that Safari and Firefox are going to be trying to lock this down. Already, uBlock Origin has been doing uh, enough to block a lot of this. I, I don't think it's 100%. Chrome has not, but hopefully they will be forced to when this becomes more of an issue. But this is a, this is a real problem. I mean, this is not just a privacy problem. This is a, this is a huge security problem. And it turns out that even the... Even the uh, the cookie jar thing that we just talked about with Firefox is not going to protect you in this case. So what do you do for now? Use Firefox, use Safari, use uBlock Origin, uh, and just know that these guys are on it and these guys are going to do whatever they can to disable this technique. And if this truly does trigger GDPR issues, I think you could expect lawsuits as well. And, you know, maybe... You know, this is a web standard. This is how it works. So they're going to have to actually revise the web standard for DNS to fix this problem, uh, ultimately. In the meantime, and which is much more likely to be what saves us, is going to be the web browsers and these privacy and security plugins like uBlock Origin, 
we'll we'll save the day uh, until that can be done. All right, just a couple more things, and then we'll get to our tip of the week, uh, and they both have to do with LastPass. Now, we need password managers. There is no way for a human to remember long, strong, unique passwords for hundreds of websites, even dozens. Uh, the human brain just can't do it. So you need a password manager to generate these crazy, truly random, unique passwords, and then you need that password manager to securely store those passwords and then to provide them back to you so you can log into these websites so you don't personally have to remember and type these things. I have been recommending LastPass since day one. Since the first edition of my book came out, You know, I did my research then and I've kept up with it since, and it has remained at the top of my list. There are several other ones out there that are that are good, and we're going to be talking about a couple of them here in a minute. But LastPass for me offered ease of use, um, a lot of great features. It was supported on all major platforms, meaning Mac and Windows, iOS and Android, all major browsers. And crucially, uh, for people just kind of dipping their toe in the pool here, uh, they had a free version which did all of those things. Um, right out of the box. You didn't have to pay for it. So you could try it for free, get used to it, and then decide later if you wanted to pay for their premium stuff. Well, LastPass was bought out by a company called LogMeIn a few years back. And I worried at that time that they would make some changes like this. And they didn't. And I was happy. Um, But I'm guessing now that somebody had the bright idea of, look, we can't keep giving this stuff away for free. We need to push more people to pay. And so they did something which I believe is a huge PR marketing no-no. And that is they took away something that they used to give away for free. Um, and what they, what that is, is they have, well, you know what, let me just, let me just read from their, their blog article that announced this. And this is just part of it, but let me, let me read it to you. So you see what they're saying. They say, we're making changes to how free users access LastPass across device types. LastPass offers access across two device types, computers, including all browsers running on desktops and laptops, and mobile devices, including mobile phones, smartwatches, and tablets. Starting on March 16th, 2021, which is next week, LastPass Free will only include access on unlimited devices of one type. To further clarify what we mean by active device type, we've included two examples below. First, Jamie is a free user with computers as their active device type. They can use LastPass on her laptop, desktop, and their dad's laptop, anyone's computer. But they can't use LastPass on their phone, tablet, or smartwatch unless they upgrade to LastPass Premium, which has unlimited device type access. Example 2. Alex is a free user with mobile devices as their active device type. They can use LastPass. They really mix up their pronouns here. They can use LastPass on his iPhone, Android work phone, tablet, and smartwatch. But they, they keep mixing them up, can't use LastPass on their desktop or laptop unless they upgrade to LastPass Premium, which has unlimited device type access. Also, as a free user, your first login on or after March 16th will set your active device type. You'll have three opportunities to switch your active device type to explore what's right for you. Please note that all of your devices sync automatically, so you'll never lose access to anything stored in your vault or be locked out of your account, regardless of whether you choose computer or mobile devices to access LastPass. And it goes on, and one of the other main things it says at this point is that free users will no longer get email support. Basically, they've just got to search through the quote-unquote knowledge base, uh, the help website, to see if that question has already been answered by somebody else. 
which is bad. But to me, the worst part is this whole device type thing. And you need access to your passwords everywhere. That's just table stakes. And they rightly gave everybody access to this for free until now. I was really honestly hoping that the backlash for this would cause them to change their minds, but so far they have not. And there's been a lot of bad press about this. If you've seen articles lately about how to switch from LastPass to something else, it's because of this. But there's actually one other thing that happened that uh, that is probably the last straw for LastPass. And this is about privacy. So this is from Apple Insider, though it was covered in many other places. It says... A security researcher has detailed seven trackers inside popular password manager LastPass that the company itself or other advertisers can utilize to create targeted ads for users of the app. German security researcher Mike Kuketz has uncovered seven trackers within the, within the LastPass Android app, a password manager that has over 10 million installations in the Google Play Store alone. These trackers involved were Apps Flyer, Google Analytics, Google Crashlytics, Google Firebase Analytics, Google Tag Manager, Mix Pixel, and Segment. Trackers have come to be expected in certain apps, namely social media and online shopping outlets. The researchers note that something about including trackers in a password vault app seems insidious, and I would totally agree. Kuketz points out that immediately after launching LastPass on Android, six of the seven tracking apps activate before the user even interacts with the app. He also points out that at no point is the user ever asked whether or not they agree to have their data transmitted to the third-party providers. And by the way, I would have to think that this would be covered uh, under iOS 14 that we talked about earlier in the show. In other words, popping up and saying, hey, do you want this to happen? And you'll have the opportunity to say no. During his test, Kuketz uncovered that the app tracks what device the user is using, whether the app is being used for free or under a subscription, and if the user prefers to use a biometric lock. LastPass's Android version also continues to, continues to track the user while they use the app. While the trackers may not receive sensitive content, such as passwords themselves, they track nearly everything else. Data tracked includes when a password has been created, what kind of account the user is creating, such as a social media profile versus a bank or credit card account, a user's IP address, a user's current location, and more. There's no way to object to this tracking or opt out of it either. A user would need to uninstall to prevent further tracking. And I'm not sure that's true. Uh, LastPass has said that you have the option to opt out if you go in the settings. I don't have Android, so I can't verify that. Um, but I'm not sure that's 100% true. While no trackers have been confirmed to exist in the iOS or macOS versions of LastPass, a quick glance at the iOS beta's nutrition label that we talked about earlier hints that it's not out of the realm of possibility either. Specifically, the LastPass iOS app tracks users' location, usage data, contact info, and some other user content, which all could be correlated and sold to advertisers who could then use the information to target users with ads. And what they're referring to there is a picture that you can't see uh, where it shows what the LastPass nutrition label, privacy label looks like, and it lists those things it just talked about. Um, but basically says it collects those. It doesn't say that it shares those. But it, I think what they're saying is, by virtue of the fact that they collect it, that could open the door to them eventually sharing it. The register points out that LastPass isn't the only password manager that has trackers either. Bitwarden and Dashlane both contain trackers, two and four respectively. However, LastPass rival 1Password and open source KeyPass do not feature trackers at all. A LastPass spokesman acknowledged to the register that while the trackers exist, no personally identifiable user data or password activity is passed through the trackers. They claimed that the trackers only collect limited, aggregated statistical data and are used to improve the product. 
And by the way, that is another euphemism for tracking. You know, we may record this call for quality assurance, or, you know, we want to, you know, we may record information to help make our app better. And here's the thing that is true. A lot of these analytics are things about reporting crashes and, and, and just, you know, understanding how users use your data. If you find that, you know, some feature of your product is never used, that may mean that it's either too hard to use, or maybe that the users don't want it, or maybe that the users can't find it. All these things are valuable and do help to improve the product. There is a valid use for collecting some of these analytics things, as long as it's done in, you know, aggregated, de-identified ways. However, when you subcontract out that work to these other parties, it's a lot less clear that they are not then able to get your personal information as well. Again, this comes down to first party and third party. I'm okay with LastPass knowing a lot of the things that they just talked about uh, because it's required for me to set up an account with them for one thing, you know, name, address, things like that, credit card maybe. But, you know, and also I'm fine with them knowing, you know, you know, how many passwords I have, you know, what kinds of passwords I have that, that I don't mind LastPass knowing that. What I do mind is third parties knowing that and potentially selling that to other third parties. So, um, this is basically a double whammy and it's unfortunately caused me to reevaluate my recommended password manager for most people. And so now I kind of need to qualify that recommendation. I am still currently using LastPass. Um, I have the family plan, which is a four pay plan, which means that none of these things that they just announced will affect me as far as, you know, features that they're getting rid of for the free plan. Cause I'm not on the free plan. So in that sense, it doesn't affect me. The trackers bother me and I hope that they fix this. They haven't so far, but I'm not using Android either. Um, so again, for me personally, I may stick with LastPass for a little while longer. However, I also, because I have an audience that being you, uh, and people that read the book and people who read the blog and the people who read the newsletter and people who follow me on Twitter and Facebook, etc. Uh, I feel an obligation to all of you to at least look at these other options and find a better one, especially if you need something that is free. So here, and now I need to make a nuanced recommendation. And this brings us to the tip of the week. If this bothers you, if you're using LastPass free or you're, if you're using LastPass on Android and what I just revealed to you is bothering you, here are two other things to consider. Uh, first one, and I think it's probably my primary recommendation, is a free open source password manager called Bitwarden. And it's kind of new on the block, but they've done a very good job. It's got, from all I can tell, it's got almost all the same functionality that LastPass has. And now it actually has the ability on the free tier to work on both mobile and desktop devices, which is crucial. If you're going to have a password manager, it's got to work on all your devices. Bitwarden is also completely open source, which means that anybody, you know, privacy groups, security groups can audit their code and make sure that they're doing what they say they're doing, that they are not tracking you, that they don't have security bugs. That is a really nice feature in my view. So if you need a free password manager uh, and you don't like what LastPass has been doing, I would look at Bitwarden. Now, if you are okay paying for it, and I think everybody should, it's good to pay for these products. And by the way, Bitwarden has four pay tiers as well. So they do have a business model that doesn't doesn't rely on making money off of you, your data. And, and you're welcome to go to Bitwarden because they've got actually very reasonably priced upper tiers as well. But if you're going to pay and you want something a little more polished, 
and maybe someone with a longer track record, you might look at one password, and that's the number one followed by password. They have really been kind of neck and neck with LastPass for many years as like the most recommended password uh, manager, and uh, for good reason. But they have no free tier, which is why I chose LastPass over one password for my recommendation to my audience. Now LastPass's free tier is, as far as I'm concerned, unusable. So there is no real free tier with LastPass anymore. So if you're willing to pay anyway, you might look at uh, 1Password. Their prices are similar for an individual account, um, a little more expensive for a family plan. Uh, LastPass covers six family members, and I think 35 bucks a year. And I think 1Password is only five family members for a similar price. So effectively making it more expensive per person. But if you have less than five people in your family, it doesn't matter. They have apps, you know, both Bitwarden and 1Password have apps that work on everything. Uh, so you can feel free to put it on any of your browsers, any of your desktops, any of your smartphones. Now, one more thing. You're going to have to, if you've been using LastPass, you're going to have to get all those passwords out of LastPass and into your new password manager. And luckily, that's actually pretty darn simple. In fact, it's almost too simple. Um, if you go into your LastPass vault and go under advanced, there's an export option. And you can export your file as a comma-separated value or a CSV file. So all your secrets are dumped into a, sequ into a single file. And then you can go to Bitwarden or 1Password and import that file. And bam, it's all there. Everything you had was there. You don't have to copy them over by hand. You can just immediately port your data to the new app and move on like nothing ever happened. But, and here's a key security caveat, that file... Those passwords, all that secret data, your credit cards, your secret notes, um, Wi-Fi passwords, all those things that you store in LastPass, which you can store in LastPass, it can store tons of secrets there, suddenly went from being in a super secure military-grade encryption vault to being in a single plain text unencrypted file sitting on your hard drive. So, first of all, do not put that file anywhere that it might go to the cloud. Like, don't put it in Dropbox, don't put it in Google Drive, don't put it even in your iCloud drive. Because while those services all do encrypt their data on their servers, they hold the key. So they could, or some, you know, a rogue employee or through a warrant or whatever reason, there are people at those companies in those cloud-based companies that could, if they wanted to, get that file. And you might say, well, okay, well, I'll just put it there real quick and then I'll delete it. Most of these cloud services have an undelete feature. Which really, what that really means, of course, is that they didn't really delete your file. You said you deleted it, and they've marked it for deletion, but for some period of time, often 30 days, they will still keep that file there for you in case you say, oops, I want that file back. So, when you export this CSV file, put it on your hard drive, and immediately import it into your new password manager, and then delete it right away. Put it in your trash, and delete. If you're already encrypting your hard drive... Uh, that's sufficient. Otherwise, you might want to do a secure delete on your trash to make sure that that file is well and truly destroyed. So there you have it. There's your news and your tip of the week. Okay, man, that was a long one. Thank you for hanging in there. I think you could even tell my voice is, <clears throat> my voice is a little bit hoarse. I don't know how long this is going to come out to be, This, but I've already been recording for two straight hours given that I'm going to be editing a lot of this down to something a lot less than that. But nevertheless, I've been talking for two straight hours. So uh, that would probably explain the voice. Uh, but before we go, uh, just a few 
quick uh, important things, and then uh, then we'll wrap it up. First of all, changes are finally actually happening uh, happening uh, at Patreon for my subscribers. Uh, the Discord server is live. I am actually already enjoying chatting with a few of you there. Uh, that That's really cool to be able to have a little give and take there. And uh, also, I've created a making of video. It actually ended up being about 30 minutes long. But it goes through the whole process, start to finish, of what it takes to make this podcast. So all that is available on Patreon. Check it out, patreon.com. Uh, also, if you're interested, as part of that video, uh, a couple extras I threw in there. You get to see my two dogs, Casper and Vader. Uh, who are always right outside my door and hopefully not making noise uh, like they did today while trying to record this. Uh, and also, I've got this really cool nostalgia wall where I went and repurchased. Unfortunately, I didn't save most of these things from my childhood, but I went through this phase where I wanted to recollect a lot of the really cool things from my childhood that I enjoyed uh, growing up with. And just kind of as a techie guy, some of the tech things that I've had in the past. So uh, anyway, uh, you'll get a view of that as well. Now, I did get another podcast review. Thank you so much. This comes from Tim Nardoni. Uh, it was posted on March 1st, and he marked it informative. And he says, I'm loving this show. It can fire a little above a true beginner level, but stick with it if you're new to these concepts. Uh, and yes, and I, I often struggle with, <laughs> struggle with, you know, what technical level to come in on, in on with these shows, especially with interviews when I can't really like stop in the middle and, um, and define terms that we throw out. But I always do try to come back to it and, and, and let you know what these terms are. And uh, hopefully I do a fairly good job of explaining these things. I want to appeal to a broader audience. Um, not, you know, I, I want to appeal to techie folks too, uh, but I definitely want to make sure that everybody understands because, you know, I know, as I've always said, this is, this is an everybody issue. Everybody needs to know these things. So uh, my job, I view my job as explaining it so that anybody can understand it and understand the implications. So thank you, Tim, very much for that wonderful review. And uh, always looking for more. If, as, as more get posted, uh, I will read them here. Lots of shows coming up. I've already talked to you about several interviews coming up. Next week, we'll start with our, uh, our interview with Epic about higher tech, which is automated systems used to screen job applicants, which is pretty creepy. Uh, we'll talk about that. And then after that, we'll have another, probably another new show. And then the next interview will be with Phil Zimmerman, the infamous creator of PGP. And he's, he's always a, a hoot to talk to. And I just recorded an interview with uh, somebody from EFF, a researcher at EFF, about cell site simulators. You may have heard them in the news called Stingrays. And these are uh, fake cell sites that are used to uh, track people, either for law enforcement or espionage. And he had he has a really cool project where he went out and tried to find these things. Uh, so we're going to talk about, you know, how they work, you know, what they do, uh, some of the laws around that, and his technology for trying to find these things. It's a very interesting interview. And every single one of these interviews, uh, because I've started doing this now, uh, has bonus content. I've asked some extra questions for these guests, and that extra bonus content will be available to my patrons on Patreon. So again, lots of really cool stuff coming there and more on the way. So check that out for sure. One more plug, I guess, real quick. Uh, if you haven't already and you're a Facebook kind of person, <laughs> you shouldn't be. But if you are, <laughs> follow me on Facebook. Uh, I'm posting some interesting stuff there, too. And I'll be posting even more stuff. I've got a Friday funny that comes out, uh, well, every Friday. Uh, I post the podcast there on Mondays, a little video version of that. And 
I'm hoping to be starting to post some some other general security tips. I'm certainly posting, you know, things like the you know updating your Chrome browser when you need to, or up, updating Windows because there's hot fixes. You know, all that kind of stuff goes on Twitter and Facebook. So um, if you want more immediate news and some little extra content, especially v- visual content stuff, I can't really do on the podcast. Uh, check me out on Facebook or Twitter. All right, that's a long way. That'll do it. Thank you so much for hanging in there with me. Thanks for tuning in again and uh, hopefully subscribing. Figure out when your uh, vaccines are going to be ready for your group, whatever that is. Get out there, sign up, go get them. And uh, if we're really lucky, maybe by summer we can start getting back to some sense of normalcy. But we all got to do it. So get out there and get it done. So that's it. Stay safe, everyone. And until next week, don't get caught with your drivers down.